0: When people talk about inclusive design of education, it's not make it easy or comfortable. It's let's see how we can optimize learning for everybody. So because everybody is different, we need that difference in order for us to survive, in order for us to prosper as a society, we have to have as many choices in terms of the the skills, the knowledge, the competencies as possible. It's when we encourage that diversification Rather than the conformance that we come up with new ideas, with innovation, with new strategies and choices of how to respond.
1: Diversity of ideas is harder than it looks. Welcome to Innovation for All Conversations on the Social Impact of Innovation with your host, Shana Alkvist. Welcome to the Innovation for All podcast, where it's my job to speak with business leaders, technologists, and designers on issues of culture, social systems, and diversity. I'm your host, Shayna Alkvist. In this episode, I spoke with Yuda Treviranis, founder and director of the Inclusive Design Research Center at OCAD University in Toronto. The IRDC is the nexus of an open global community whose vision is to proactively ensure that emerging technical systems and socio-technical practices are inclusive of the full range of human diversity. Uh, Yuta has also founded a pioneering graduate program in inclusive design. I was really excited about this conversation with Yuta because of her ability to question fundamental assumptions about the world. We talk about everything including, is technology making disparities worse? What is a data broker? And you probably shouldn't trust them. We also touch on her views on the future of education and why she teaches the coolest course in the world called Unlearning and Questioning. With that, I hope you enjoy. Yuta, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Oh, thank you for inviting me. I'm excited about our potential conversation. As am I. So I know we have a lot to cover today and I would love to jump in right away with. So as a product designer or someone developing a machine learning model, we tend to design for the 80%, the majority. Can you talk a little bit about why you think that might be misguided and why we do it in the first place? Yeah. So the 80-20 principle came about, It's, it's also called the Pareto principle.
0: This was a Italian academic who realized that 80% of the land was owned by 20% of the population. And if the king wanted to have any influence, then he should just worry about those 20%. It was then seen as this sort of cardinal principle. And later there were books by people like Richard Koch, who said, well, we can use this principle in other ways in that you can design for 80% of the people by using only 20% of the effort. So... Forget about the 20%. Worry about the 80%. That's where you'll get your quick wins. And that's where you will have the greatest return on your investment.
1: Right. And that makes, you know, it makes a lot of sense. What about that are we missing? So... I think we need to turn it on its head, actually. And you might think, well, isn't
0: this rational? Isn't this a good argument? Aren't we trying to save costs? Isn't isn't that a good investment? Aren't these in line with many of our business strategies? But one of the things that we've done is we've studied what happens if rather than designing for those 80% by using 20% of the effort, you started by thinking about the entire group so the hundred percent and we looked at initially because we were working in the public space design for public services of various sorts here we have the public purse we want to create something where the public investment will go as far as it possibly can we want to be responsible to the commitments of a public institution etc and we looked at design over or the the performance and the costs associated with the design over a longer period. And one of the things that we discovered was if your goal is cost savings, then in fact, it's far more cost effective to think about the 100% right at the beginning. Because what happens if you only think about the 80% is that it will be less flexible you will have many, many issues that arise because people will say, well, wait, this doesn't work for me. I need further accommodations or I need changes in the design so that I can use it. And so you continuously have to make hacks or you have to make modifications to the design. And because you've designed it for that 80%, your design is quite constrained. You haven't thought about flexibility. You haven't thought about adaptability. And you haven't really thought about the changes that might happen in the environment or in the context that you're in. And so slowly you bolt on more and more changes and more modification, more hacks. And over time, your original design becomes very, very cumbersome and difficult. And you've created or you've entrenched within your system this inflexible, infrastructure or foundation and so the end of life of that particular design is quite quick and sudden however if at the beginning you have thought about the hundred percent your design is going to take a little bit longer initially it's probably going to cost a little bit more at the beginning but what happens is you are encouraged to create a foundational infrastructure or a structure within your design that is flexible and that will be able to adapt which will be able to respond and so what will happen is as the world changes as even those 80 percent that you were originally designing for change and their needs change you will have a system that has much more room for variability for moving with the changing context so you can respond to the unexpected. And if you're the population that you are trying to serve, even if it's only sort of the majority, you will have far greater flexibility. So in the end, it will cost less.
1: Well, and there's there's a piece in there that I want to push back on. So it makes sense to me that if you're designing for the 80% that I could see that now you're building a system that. F- feels like it's going to be a quick win, but really over time you've developed a system that you're going to have to bolt on additional accommodations to make it fit the whole system. So that part I buy, but can you tell me a little bit more about why designing for the 100% up front would make it more flexible as the system changes? So I could see how basically you're developing a better, more nuanced system to accommodate more variety early on, but why would we expect that? But but aren't we still limited by that hundred percent? Like aren't we still constrained in a different way? And would it really buy us anything as that population changes?
0: Well, in order to answer that challenge, I need to tell you a little bit about inclusive design and what we found in terms of designing for the edge. So there are a number of misconceptions about accessibility, about who is at the margins, who's at the edge, who's at the tails. One of the things that I've been playing with is data sets quite a bit. And if you take any population and you look at what their needs and preferences are and what their characteristics are, and you plot it on a three-dimensional data visualization what you get is something that looks like an exploding star it's a it's a normal distribution it's also called a three-dimensional gaussian curve but basically what it looks like is this is an exploding star and so what you have in the middle are a whole bunch of densely clump together dots and but as you, which represent people (laughs) and then as you head out towards the edges, the dots get further and further apart and what that means is that people are more and more different from each other or more distant in terms of their requirements from each other as you move away from that middle 80% cluster and so the misconception frequently in terms of accessibility, in terms of inclusive design, is that inclusive design is about some particular checklist of requirements or a category of people that are people with disabilities. And you can design something that works for all of them or for that works for a particular currently excluded group. In fact, what you see when you look at the scatter plot is that there is, it becomes less and less possible to create one size fits all types of designs as you move further and further towards the edge. What you have is a greater diversification as you move away from the 80%. So to address the 100% you are going to have to create a system that stretches to all sorts of edges to these 360 degrees of edges meaning that the underlying infrastructure or the underlying structure the opportunity for your design to flex and morph requires a fundamental foundational difference uh, when you are designing for the for that
1: Full spectrum, all the margins and all the edges. I see. So it's not just that you're including a different subset; it's that from the very beginning you're asking it to be a much more flexible and accommodating system.
0: Right. And the the way that that we do it in inclusive design is you need to do it in iterations, where we continuously ask, "Who are we missing? Who's not included?" So it's not a. I mean the the other piece of inclusive design that is somewhat different is that there is not a a final fix or a final product. There is no termination in terms of the design. What you need to build into the design is a process that allows you to continuously update and to continuously ask who's not accommodated, what do we need to do to include people who are currently not
1: part of the decision-making process or who are not served by this particular design. So as you say that, it sounds like nobody's doing that. (laughs) And so with that, I wonder, um, what's your perspective on, is technology making disparities worse?
0: We call it a a double-edged sword. There are so many amazing opportunities to do things more inclusively with technology because technology can become a a fairly powerful tool for translation so it can it can build bridges it can network there are ways in which technology can translate things from one modality to another allow control of things by specific actions that you have into the the required actions of a particular tool or resource or service. Technologies also can, in terms of the network capabilities, reduce fragmentation, connect you with people who have something in common with you, especially if you live in an area where you are the only person with a particular requirement. But the way that we have ported old practices and understanding of design and business and research and evidence, et cetera, into the technical systems that we currently have has resulted in growing disparity. So yes, I think not technology inherently. And and, um, I use a a different definition of technology. Um, I I like to use Ursula Franklin's definition of technology, which is technology is the way we do things. Technology is, is anything that we use to accomplish something. So that encompasses a whole bunch of things, including sort of how we plan and a variety of other things. So technology itself is not inherently bad or good or
1: beneficial or not beneficial. It's how we implement it, how we use it. Well, and so I know at this point we've been talking about this in sort of an abstract way, you know, the 80% and the 20%, but I'm hoping you can share a story of machine learning models and autonomous vehicles and some of the, the real world consequences for ignoring the 20%.
0: Okay. Yeah. So I've been working in this field for so long for, well, since 79, since the first personal computer came out. And I've been talking about biases and stereotypes and presumptions and the need for inclusion forever, often at technical tables and often to hard scientists. And of course, you can imagine how I'm dismissed whenever I talk that. It's sort of this this fuzzy female topic that doesn't gain any respect and people's eyes quickly glaze over, but one of the things that uh, happened just recently was my discovery of how we can make this topic and the importance of of these considerations relevant and interesting to hard scientists. So that's just a a quick sort of preamble to this story. I had a, a fairly pivotal moment when Many of the things that I've been talking about for over 30 years sort of coalesced. I had the opportunity to test out six uh, learning models that would be used to guide automated vehicles at intersections. That means these are the AI smarts, the things that are going to inform a vehicle as it's approaching an intersection what it should do given what it's it finds at the intersection. Um, this was through the opportunity came because our ministry of transport here was wanting to predict or to plan for the emergence of automated vehicles within the province so wh- what I did is I had a 3d capture of some individuals that are friends of mine that traverse an intersection in a very unexpected and unusual way. They push themselves through the intersections backwards using their feet and legs Um, they can't stand but they have very very strong legs and they go very quickly and very erratically across an intersection and it's so unpredictable and unexpected that often what happens is if they're doing it and there's someone another pedestrian in the intersection quite frequently that pedestrian will try to grab them they'll think they're out of control and they'll try to push them back onto the intersection So it's unpredictable and unexpected for people. And I I was wondering what would happen to these AI systems? What would they do if they encountered someone like this at an intersection? And what I discovered was that they all ran this person over. So every <laughs> every one of them, all six of them, would choose to continue through the intersection despite the fact that this person was approaching the intersection backwards in their wheelchair. And then I was told by the learning model developers, well, these learning models are not yet fully mature, we are going to get further data, which will include a lot of data
1: about individuals in wheelchairs traversing an intersection. So right, up- and to interrupt you... Um- I wonder if this is a naive question, but are all data models built alike? You know, if, if Google's been driving across America for the last 10 years and Uber's been doing it for the last three, should we really assume that all these models are created equally?
0: No, they, I mean, it's, it's whatever data they use is going to determine the abilities and the ability of the AI system to predict what needs to be done and to detect risk, et cetera. However, there are some dominant data brokers, and there is sort of that echo effect where many of the automated vehicle manufacturers are using similar data sets, but not necessarily, they're not necessarily all the same. But in this case, all of the ones that I was able to play with, or work with, or try out were doing the same thing. And, of course, they were claiming, well, they each claimed that they were going to get further data. Uh, when I came back with the learning model after they had trained it with a larger data set, which included individuals with, um, who were uh, traversing intersections using a wheelchair, actually, what, what happened was they all ran them over my friend over with greater confidence <laughs> <laughs> that when they got smarter, when they used more data, when they had more data, they were thinking that they they were more confident that a wheelchair should move forward, um, and that the the decision that they were making to continue through the intersection, despite this the particular individual approaching the intersection that they would they were uh, the true way to, or the best decision, uh, the best prediction was to continue through the intersection.
1: That's interesting. So it's almost like you could imagine them buying, uh, first of all, I'd love for you to explain a little bit more about what a data broker is and does, but it almost sounds like they're getting the 80% of wheelchair you know, uh, locomotion paths and ignoring the tails of, of that data set or something.
0: Right. And that's a, um, a great observation. It actually, it, it's more than even the 80-20, but it, it's possibly how the 80-20 has infected not just business practices and design practices, but how it's affected our thoughts about data about truth about evidence about research and quantitative statistics because the 8020 rule came from this pareto principle but at about the same time when we first had big data when there was first the first big data movement which was the demographics of the 1880s there uh, what emerged was keteles idea of the average person and this notion of average, which led to statistical significance, which led to statistics. And what we see there is that we're assuming that truth or evidence is comes from statistical power and statistical significance. It's all about probability. And so even, um, I mean, our the 80-20 rule says, ignore the 20% in terms of design. But we as researchers have said that unless you have statistical significance, which only can be achieved by having a homogeneous research group that is, is fully controlled and is in high numbers, do you arrive at truth? I mean, how many times do you tune into a radio station and you hear that we... The typical female, whatever, or the average man, etc. We accept something as true and evident, and we we think of it as only accepted knowledge if we have uh, this this large homogenous number that
1: is making it so. Uh, so it well, and I'd love to just unpack that. So, can you say a little bit more about why? From a statistics perspective for people who aren't familiar with stats, why that homogeneity is important in the models? Okay, so and it all gets to data.
0: Um, so the, the AI example and research, quantitative research, are all about data. If we want to make it, so let's go back to sort of a a very, very oversimplified version of what happens in quantitative research. If we want to prove or disprove a hypothesis or prove that the null hypothesis is not true, um, meaning, I mean, a hypothesis is a statement, you know, uh, women are better off drinking one glass of wine a day than not drinking any red wine. I'm just taking. what we need to prove is that the null hypothesis is not the case, that it isn't the case, that there is no difference when you drink one glass of wine a day. In order to actually prove that hypothesis, we need to show that there are no other conditions that are affecting it. So it may be that women are better off, not because of the one glass of wine, but because they get more sleep or I mean, a whole bunch of, of other things. So what you need to do is you need to isolate the conditions, meaning that you need to remove everything and
1: anything that might have the same effect as your one glass of wine. And I have a really interesting follow-up question for you, actually, that's if we're really going to get out there in the weeds of of like questioning fundamental assumptions. Not to cut you off, but I'm recently exploring this concept of um, rejecting the scientific method, right? Mm -hmm. Um, So I'm wondering if you have any thoughts about this because what you're describing is such a fundamental assumption for the way things should be in research and science. But I know this is something you and I agree on, we should always ask, like, why is it that way? And is there a better way? So I'm just curious if you have any thoughts on whether the scientific method is, needs updating or is incomplete. Oh,
0: yes, most definitely needs updating. And I, I think that the sort of ripple effect of how we valorized and made sacred the scientific method has such destructive force that ripples through everything. So it's not just the fact that you need a, you're, you have to have a homogenous group. But then the notion of representation, which of course is also why we need a homogeneous group in order to make an assertion about the population as a whole or the population that that we're making the, the declaration about, we need to get a representative sample. But of course, it's impossible to get a representative sample of any size or number when you get out towards the margins or the edge. And that it has all these implications, but the other implication, of course, is, is this assumption that we can decontextualize research. Mm-hmm. I mean, what in our life is completely isolated from context? Almost nothing, uh, and the entanglement of people and the environment, and um, through networks and through everything, means that there there is no isolated effect. I mean, there is nothing that replicates a clean lab there's nothing that replicates sort of a in in our life and so how can we make assertions about the likelihood of something being true or something actually being transferable outside of a lab when the lab environment is likely um, not replicated anywhere I mean it, it doesn't has no affinity or
1: comparability to anything in our life Well, and I've I've always wondered about this because um, so I I have a background in social psychology, but a a close friend of mine had a degree in physics, and you know they used to joke about that their homework problems would have like you have a bunch of frictionless pulleys, and and I always thought it was strange, you know, physics is designed to describe physical reality, so how is it you can have problems that describe frictionless pulleys that are of any value? And he would argue that you could separate out these individual components and glean useful information. And so I've often wondered, is it that, so I think part of what you're describing, the importance of context, may be more true for social systems or social sciences. And I wonder if it's that because we've for so long revered uh, the hard sciences as, as the gold standard, if we're trying to fit this new domain of social science into a system that maybe isn't quite as good a fit. So I'm wondering if maybe we should have some new standard of analysis for for social systems, for instance.
0: Yeah. So physics and, I mean, a lot of the, even the Ketelet and Pareto, the, the two scientists that I was, whose ideas I, I want to fight against, they came up with these particular insights based upon that they wanted to become the new Newton, right? They wanted to impose or transfer the types of fundamental foundational principles to people. And of course, what we're talking about when we're talking about people is, is this highly, highly complex, highly entangled and individual. I mean, even if we're only talking about a single individual and the notion of the average man was an attempt to get rid of the diversity or the, the differences among people and uh, create th- this ideal that expressed the essence of man or, and, of course, in the process, got rid of all of our differentiation and variability. The idea that there is an average man, of course, is, is hugely suspect and destructive. The idea that there is even a instance of an average us like each each individual is so variable we act very differently from context to context from goal to goal different times in our life we're hugely affected by context and by the social structures that we're in to say that a society a group a population actually can be distilled down into those principles is is also very very suspect But the the other thing that I think is at issue here is that it creates this ideal of a, a hierarchy, a ranking, that there is an ideal person and that we all need to conform to that ideal and that we all need to compete to become that ideal. And that ideal is in some way a homogenous notion of what people should be. When we think about biodiversity, it is hugely destructive, because what we know about biodiversity is the way for a species to survive, a way for anything to survive is through diversification. And so what we're pressing towards is homogenization, conformity, uh, a single sort of ideal that uh, cannot survive and cannot adapt adequately. So it. it has these ripples that go through all sorts of uh, different areas even in economics we know about diversification and yet what we've ended up there uh, with is uh, a polarization which gets on oh, to okay. another t- topic but um will yeah go ahead you, you were going to ask something different no, i, 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 I... think onto these tangents i mean I, I think you probably sense that my thinking about this has reached into all of the different parts of the academy and and our notions of society and philosophy and economics and business, um, et cetera.
1: Henry Ford once said, if I had asked people what they wanted, they would have said faster horses. Sounds like Ford hired a bad user researcher. PhD Insights is different. They help understand the attitudes and motivations that underlie what customers claim. And this is good for business. So if your company isn't adding attitudinal feedback to their data pipeline, they're missing half the story. Learn how PhD Insights can help your company with pricing, product strategy, and positioning by visiting phdinsights.com. That's phd-insights.com. No, I think that's wonderful. Well, and I was going to ask, because I, I do want to move on to the future of education, uh, but I have one last question on the way we think about data and machine learning. So if, if someone in the audience who's listening is a machine learning developer, then they're, they're listening to you today and they're thinking, you know, that's a really valid point. What resources could you suggest or, or what could they do differently to take this to heart? Right.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So uh, this is I'm still playing with this and I think it's quite a quandary because data of course is usually a normal distribution and you always have in a normal distribution you always have a gaussian curve even if you decided that i was you were going to pay attention to the tails and that you were going to not clean out the outliers and that's what data brokers do. They generally emphasize the dominant patterns so that you can get to inference more quickly and that you can make uh, useful decisions much more quickly, which is similar to the Pareto rule. I mean, if, if you design for the middle, you have quick wins, you don't spend as much money up front and you quickly have a product that will work for a group of people. So the, the data brokers are using that same Pareto rule there. They're saying, here, I have a wonderful data set. We've cleaned out anything that's anomalous. We've emphasized and made it possible to see the dominant patterns. And you're going to come up with a decision that that works for the majority quite quickly. If you fight against that and you use the full data set, you include all the outliers, you include all the anomalous pieces. Um, even if if you do that, what will happen is those anomalies are going to be overpowered by the, what we call the norm or the average or the mean, um, and your algorithms will still revert to the mean. So you're still going to design for the average or the typical, because that's the way our systems, our data systems and and our data analytics is uh, designed. So I started to play with uh, this normal distribution and then, and most people will be familiar with uh, the bell curve in, in education, where if anybody's been a teacher and had to mark, people, the the idea is that you're supposed to rank them on a bell curve and there should be a, a normal distribution. And if you don't do it, then your principal comes to you and says, hey, you gave too many high marks. It has to be a normal distribution, uh, which we, we can talk about. after. I knew it. No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, but uh, if you think about the bell curve, it's sort of like that starburst that I was talking about. It's a Gaussian curve. A bell curve is basically a 2D a two-dimensional um, view of the normal distribution. And so I've been playing with that Gaussian curve. And believe it or not, it has to do with democracy as well
1: in voting, Which, um, but I won't go down that tangent. I can already uh, tell that I'm going to want to have you back on the podcast for, for more topics. <laughs> so
0: what I've been doing, I, I started out by thinking about, okay, how do we train a system so that it's going to be flexible enough that it it, it reaches those edges, um, that it will recognize my friend who's going backwards in, in the intersection. And so the first experiment I did is I did what we called apple coring the data. That means I took the middle out. I decided, okay, I'm going to train a system without the middle, without that dense middle of points. So it's going to have to be much more flexible and it's going to have to it's going to learn more slowly because it won't have that dominant pattern, but in order to learn anything it's going to have to reach into the data that's at the tails and in fact, what I found was that, that it the model that we created did was able to transfer better so meaning transferring meaning that if the learning model was trained on one thing and we gave it uh, a decision that was some slightly different or in a different domain, it was able to learn to make a a decision in that new domain more quickly than if it had uh, trained on
1: the full gaussian curve the That's, I was going to say that benefit sounds so compelling that it makes me it, it makes me feel like the trade off so essentially in terms of the cost versus benefits of moving to this this strategy is your i mean what is what is the cost then is it just so it you have to have a, that additional forethought or is it well, it takes longer, so it'll take long. It doesn't reach a,
0: a reasonable inference very quickly. So, say it was a pattern recognition system, like a voice recognition system, it will not as go as quickly to recognizing the average voice. But once it does start recognizing voices, it will
1: recognize a, a broader range of voices. And it well, and what what do those timescales look like? Just so I have a sense, is it is it Australia. eight months instead of one day, or is it? It's
0: variable. Um, it depends on what data set and what, dis- what inferences or decisions you're asking it to make. But despite the fact that it, was, it could transfer, the, the issue that I still found with it is uh, because we're using the same algorithms or the same rules, it was still reverting to the mean, meaning that even though we didn't have the middle in there and even though it uh, was paying attention to more, um, it, was still, it was still privileging the, the middle. So the decisions that you made would be biased towards the middle still. So what I did as a second thing, we've often used this this analogy, leveling the playing field, right? If you've ever worked in equity or diversity, we talk about leveling the playing field. So I thought, okay, what about leveling the playing field? And one of the, the next very, very, preliminary experiments I did was what my students dubbed the lawnmower of justice. Um, (laughs) Basically what we did is, so a Gaussian curve is like this hill, right? I mean, and what we did is we just chopped it off. We chopped off the top of the hill, meaning that any time that there were repeats of a particular data point, we wouldn't allow more than a certain number of data points Mm. or repeats so if there were 260 people that all had the same data point we would only allow four right Mm. and what, what that did was it basically allowed for the individuals that were in the minority that were the small numbers to still be noticed and that's the strategy that that we're experimenting with and it's it's working out quite well the one thing is when we tried it with an automated vehicle um model it didn't run over my friend anymore
1: yes <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, exactly um, but but i'm still it's still really really early days and so i um but the interesting thing is that it sort of validates a lot of what I've been talking about in a theoretical way and, and not in end in a practical but anecdotal way for many, many years. And it also sort of highlights some of, of what we can do in, in other areas. The other problem with, of course, data sets and using data to train artificial intelligence is that we're using data from the past. And so if you've never, if there's no data to say that you've successfully done something or to say that you are a good bet for a particular decision, then you're never gonna get a chance. So it's replicating and automating and amplifying the past. And that that's another thing that I've been playing with. How do we get around that? Because no matter how robust and well intentioned and deeply thought out uh, your data your sort of learning models for artificial intelligence are that if you're using data you're just going to be replicating the past and so one of the other things we've been playing with is combining data about the past or and data from other contexts um, like with model-
1: <laughs> what's that like the future yeah.
0: <laughs> possibly
1: yeah what is the alternative to the past I wonder yeah
0: yeah with uh with uh modeling so and constructed data sets so yeah the future are are made up (laughs) (laughs) so because I mean you can't just it, it can't just be made up out of thin air uh so we we combine the deep learning models with data modeling. And that especially where there are good models includes, well, economics have a lot of models and and economic modeling has, has happened for quite some time. And it's, it's often used to try to predict where will the greatest profit be, you know, all of those sorts of things. And there's fairly complex models that are respected within the economics field. And so that's one of the areas where we've combined past data with modeling of of potential futures. But isn't the modeling of the potential future based on past data? It is, but not, uh, but often not surprisingly. So it is also frequently based upon, okay, what happens? uh, So for example, we did a, i was able to play with this a little bit in a experiment that we did or a study that we did here in ontario uh, where it was uh, we called it releasing constraints and it was with the Martin Prosperity Institute. And the imaginary that we had was what would happen if we made all, like if, if we had a completely accessible Ontario and people with disabilities were not going to have any barriers to participation. So what we did was we worked with imaginary numbers. So what, what would happen if everybody that could work was working? And what would that do to our GDP? What would it do to whatever What, what would happen if everyone was able to attend school or um, you know th- those sorts of things? So yes, it is based upon data of the past, so you hold mm-hmm. certain things constant and use it use past data. but then you flip some of the things that have never happened in the past and Another example of that that is kind of fun that I'm working on, and I'm not sure when that will come to fruition or anybody will be able to see it, but we've been working with a community imaginary. We have these Jane Jacobs days here. Um, I don't know if you've... No, you I've, have- I've never heard of that. Can you explain what that is? Okay, so do you know who Jane Jacobs is? I do not. Ah, she's this amazing urban planner. Um, she helped with the transformation of New York. She then moved to Toronto and she created many of the more progressive views of communities. She wrote quite a few books. She died, unfortunately, a number of years ago and and was quite pessimistic about the direction that cities were going. But uh, she celebrated globally with Jane Jacob Walks every year. And Jane Jacob Walks are opportunities for the whole community to get together and to reflect upon their community and to explore the community and find out what are the challenges and what are the opportunities within a community and to galvanize a community to address some of those issues. So what we wanted to do was to have, uh, or I I was working together with a group that was very, very interested in augmented reality. And I said, okay, if you want to play with augmented reality, let's use augmented reality as a a sort of productive tool, not just as a a gaming tool. So I proposed we do a Jane Jacobs walk where we used augmented reality tools to walk through our community and imagine what would have happened if we had made different design decisions Mm. what would happen if we had intergenerational housing rather than seniors ghettos here what Mm. would happen if we offered housing for if we had a better program for individuals who are homeless. What would happen if we had these poverty reduction systems? What would happen if we had more playground, more green spaces, et cetera, or or fairly minor decisions like what would happen if there were better garbage collection systems or, um, and then using models of other communities that have actually implemented that, see, walk through your community and see how your community might be transformed so we're, we're, that's one of the ways in which we're playing with this idea of combining past and future data to help us plan and see and make decisions in, in a sort of informed way. But it, of course, breaks every rule of traditional evidence-based research, right? We're disrupting everything we know as academics and scientists because we are playing loose with Evidence, data, uh,
1: scientific processes. Wow, that is amazing. So, I'd love to talk to you a little bit more about the future of education. And I have lots and lots of questions and thoughts on this, but I know our time is limited. So, briefly, can you talk a little bit about the difference between educating for scarcity versus abundance? So, basically, I, our education, I mean, there's several things.
0: I'm a professor. I've been working in universities and working with schools forever, and that our educational institutions are designed really to resist change, which to some extent is a good thing, because it, our education systems and our schools are not intended to swing with the whims of whatever ideology or political structure is there at the moment. It, they were. Back when they first formed, when it was monasteries and things of that nature, uh, they were constructed in such a way that they would guard truth and guard knowledge and etc but they 're hopelessly outdated at the moment um, they Our current education systems are largely built for the industrial age when what we needed to create were replaceable workers are, and that built upon sort of the religious institutions that frequently ran our educational institutions or created them and and hosted them because they were wanting a conformant student. And so the systems are designed to produce a student that conforms to a particular educational standard And the idea is that not everyone can achieve the pinnacle of education. It's intended to weed out the less worthy, the less capable, and to move forward, the more capable and the more deserving. And all of those things are no longer the case. They are based upon a culture of scarcity when everything to some extent was was scarce knowledge was scarce only experts hold, held it i mean back when of course before the printing press uh, the the capturing of knowledge the storage of knowledge was quite scarce and you needed people to memorize these things uh, the printing press made it less scarce but even there it it didn't sort of encompass everyone the People that had the time and the leisure and the funds to be able to become experts were scarce, etc. What we have now is we have an, an age of abundance. That, um, I mean, knowledge is free for the taking. In fact, we're overwhelmed with information. The individuals that can develop expertise, almost anyone can develop the expertise. But more importantly than all of that is that, in order to survive, we're, we're in a knowledge economy. I mean, we're beyond a knowledge eco- economy. The, in order for anyone to prosper or to uh, be able to participate fully in our society, you have to be literate. You have to be able to continuously learn throughout your life. We have a conception of education. I mean, in academia, and especially in post-secondary education, we talk about a terminal degree, and that language Mm. um, makes a lot of sense given sort of how we view education. Education is this pinnacle that you reach, and then once you've achieved it, you can stop learning. You've you've sort of been certified as uh, now you are a member of, a, a, an elite group. We progress kids through these uh, age-linked stages, uh, built one upon the other, assuming that there's only one way to uh, achieve this pinnacle, etc. <laughs> all, all of these things are completely and utterly outdated, but for very, very good reasons, uh, the, our educational institutions are uh, change-resistant. So what would education, if, if we were able to say, start from scratch and create an education system that would work for today's reality and the reality that our kids are gonna face in the future, it, it would look very, very different. There are many things that are, we would call into question. The, one of the things is our um, emphasis of, on competition on sort of a, a, a ranking of every learner on the same scale. I mean, the, the whole notion of grading and marks and the bell curve that we were talking about before is, is so misleading because it implies that um, we are la- lining up all of our students in some sort of hierarchical fashion where there's a best and a worst, when in fact what we need is we need a diversification of skills and competencies. It encourages competition and fairly predatory and destructive competition when in fact what we need is we need to produce individuals that can work as a team where they both understand what it is that they are good at and how they can orchestrate that or
1: collectively contribute that to a team effort. So it almost sounds like you're saying, so at first it sounds a little bit like hippie nonsense, right? Of, if, if we shouldn't yeah. be, if not to say it that way, but, yeah. um, you know, we shouldn't be comparing our kids to one another, but it sounds like what you're saying is it's not that it's that we need to almost be thinking about skills in a, in a broader way and that you could be, you know, capable of, of something that we're not really measuring and that, that might be very valuable. Exactly. Yeah, it's not, you know, be nice to
0: everybody and, and pat everybody on the back, even when they're not, don't challenge anybody or or those sorts of notions. Um, give everybody a break. Um, they optimal thing is to challenge everybody as much as uh, like to, to produce challenges within education that are, are within your capability, but just at the edge of your capability. And I, I think that that actually is, is often a misconception when people talk about inclusive design of education. It's not make it easy or comfortable. It's let's see how we can optimize learning for everybody. So because everybody is different, we need that difference in order for us to survive in order for us to prosper as a society we have to have as many choices in terms of the the skills the knowledge the competencies as possible it's when we encourage that diversification rather than the conformance that we come up with new ideas with innovation with new strategies and choices of how to respond given the the sort of complex, chaotic situation that we've, we're coming upon. We need critical thinkers, and that's not what we're encouraging when we do the type of education that leads to conformance and that leads to what we've called educational standards and that we've valorized as sort of the benchmark of, of where students should go. The idea that everybody needs to have the, exactly the same set of competencies or skills is really problematic and that we should all compete for those particular competencies and skills. That leads, leaves us as a human society in a very vulnerable position. Whatever threat, whatever demand or challenge comes upon us, we're not going to have very many choices for how to address them or how to deal with them. Uh, we, rather than collaborating or as a a team and being able to responsively sort of knit together our parts into a greater whole where we're probably gonna respond competitively. Um, So, I I mean, even in the most non-hippie scenario that we can come up, the most dystopian scenario that we can come up with, it is so much more valuable and uh, in fact, an imperative that we rethink our education system and how we're preparing the next generation.
1: Well, with that, I'd love for you to share a little bit about your unlearning and questioning course.
0: Yes. So I I started a a graduate program in inclusive design and uh, what the first course that I recruit people to is called unlearning and questioning, which of course you might think, oh my goodness, I thought education was about learning, not unlearning. But what I found is that there it's like those protein receptors if it's the receptors blocked with a particular idea or notion or understanding or assumption then you're not open to new ones so that what i found is that the first thing i need to do is to engage in unlearning i structure the course very differently as well rather than having a class of the best and the brightest in some particular criteria, I try to uh, recruit a a class that is as radically diverse as possible in all sorts of facets. So age, uh, academic background, life experiences, and especially people that have had to deal with in their past some challenging experiences or barriers, because I find that they bring a perspective that is not experienced by the majority and they have a resourcefulness and an understanding of the processes that you need to go
1: through for inclusive design. Can you give an example of some a person like that? So
0: it varies with, you know, someone who has gone through a refugee experience and had to get used to a completely new environment, has dealt with discrimination, or someone that has dealt with poverty and has had to make do with the a lack of resources, or someone that that learns differently, that has perhaps um, a sensory disability, etc makes you much more flexible and responsive um, if you've addressed those challenges. And those are really valuable insights if we're working as a team. and if the the other thing that I do within the unlearning and questioning course is rather than having sort of disposable assignments, those exercises that you that every student does and that they never look at again, and the professor, uh, marks and then they end up in the the trash bin or the recycling bin. I engage the students in a real world problem or concern, and uh, what they produce is something that that is open to other students to use um, and that is going to be of value as more than simply exercise in uh, proving that you have learned a particular thing so the the teams that I pull together, these highly diverse teams, work together on a, a project or a problem that is a real-world problem, and they co-design with the individuals that the problem impacts. And for that reason, I, I need individuals that have a, a huge diversity of, of potential skills and competencies and
1: uh, experiences from their past Well, I could talk for hours about this, but uh, I know we're running low on time. So I wanted to ask you before I get to a final few questions, um, if you have an ask for the audience or anything you'd like to share.
0: Ah, yeah. Actually, one of the things that I'm hoping to launch, and this is a, a very sort of nascent, precarious initiative, but it is in this area of education. I have for many, many decades been working within an academic institution, but I think it is so urgent that we need to very, very quickly think about how we need to change education that I've decided that I I need to do it in a a somewhat different way. And so what what I'm launching and together with a, a bunch of people, a community of people around the world is what I call the lab, or we don't have a good name yet. And maybe part of what I'm asking is, do people have a good name for this? But the current thing we're calling it is the Lab School for Inclusive Lifelong Learning. And we're using a completely different governance model or or structural model. We're creating this Lab School for Inclusive Lifelong Learning as a a platform co-op, meaning that It is a learning community where you gain membership as both a student and an instructor. And uh, we are doing problem and project-based learning. And the the reason why other academic institutions are not seeing it as, as something to dismiss is that what we hope to do is to experiment and try out in our environment a whole variety of ways in which we could transform learning. And we'll do that in a way that doesn't risk the other institutions so they can learn from it. And so before they foist sort of our crazy ideas on the uh, larger institutions, they they will have um, us as the guinea pig to try out these things. It will be lifelong. So we're going to mix and match a whole variety of of ages and stages. Um, We're going to bring in people from where we're post-disciplinary. So uh, we'll have uh, the the largest possible variety of back, uh, academic backgrounds and experiences. We're going to focus on diversification of skills and competencies. And w- one of the things that has been my mantra with smart systems and learning analytics and computers within the learning space is that we need to make the learners smarter about their own learning, not just the machines smarter about students' learning. And so a large part of this will be getting to know how to optimize your own learning and self-determining what you want to set as your goals and how you're going to optimize your movement towards those goals. None of this is new (laughs) uh, other than possibly uh, a lab school as a platform co-op, but we're going to try to combine all of those things and uh, do a fairly bold experiment of how to create a inclusive lifelong learning experience that is, is better suited to our current and our future reality.
1: That's fascinating. Well, with that, a couple final questions. Who do you think is someone who's really interesting, but that you disagree with?
0: The person I picked is Steven Pinker. So Steven Pinker's written a whole bunch of books where he's claiming that uh, the world is getting better, it's not getting worse, that violence is down, that pollution is decreasing, that poverty is decreasing that we shouldn't be so alarmist we shouldn't worry about these things because in fact his contention is that the world is getting better and better but the, I, I don't necessarily disagree with him. But what I disagree with is what he's using as the measure of better. And and that gets to my 80-20. It gets to the AI stuff. Because what he's using as a measure is, is the world getting better for the majority? And I think that's a deceptive measure. Because what that means, I mean, if we carry that on, uh, if all we're concerned about is, the world is our world, is our society, is how we design where we live and what we do, the measure of of whether we're doing well is for the majority, then we're really in trouble. I think the alternative measure is how well are the most vulnerable among us doing if we use steve pinker's measure then what will happen is um as i mentioned we'll fail to stretch innovate and adapt as a society and we're going to create a a fairly a huge divide between the majority and the people who are at the margins and we're going to make it harder and harder for individuals who are at the margins to gain the prosperity or to to cross that widening chasm of the divide. If our society becomes more fit, what what that fitness means, and, and he, he frequently talks about fitness, but I think what fitness is, is fitness means the ability to evolve, the ability to innovate, the ability to deal with the unexpected, the ability to deal with chaos and change that happens. And all of those don't come about when... All we're looking at is the majority. It comes about when we are looking at the edge and we're looking at the individuals that are currently at the margins and that that are not doing well in our society. If we use the measure of the majority, then we're going to become more of a comfortable, com- conventional, complacent sort of monoculture. And we're going to have to create defenses to ignore the individuals that are uh, not doing well. And uh, th- this gets into sort of my my worries about democracy as well, because if majority rules, the example that I frequently use is if um, the majority is concerned with uh, the pot of getting the potholes fixed in front of their driveway as quickly as possible. And the minority is concerned with how the services that they need, they need have their children survive. Um, if we use the current democratic processes, what will happen is we'll elect the individuals that promise to fix the potholes. And we won't elect the individuals or give power to the individuals that are going to ensure that, the children of the minority survive. I, I think we need to relook at where we're going, and that will require a whole range of rethinking and unlearning and questioning, which is part of what I'm um, trying to advocate within our education systems. Let's let's critically examine a ton of our assumptions. All of these blind spots we've created are framing of where we need to go and what we need to do.
1: Well, and you do seem like someone who's very thoughtful about questioning assumptions and reconsidering what we believe to be known. What's something you've changed your mind about recently? There are many, many things that I've sort of shifted away from.
0: More things that have gone in unexpected directions, and, and one of the things I talk about quite often is the cobra effect, which is the unintended consequences of simple solutions to complex problems, and I found myself in that cobra effect loop quite often, where I thought, uh, oh, we can come up with a cardinal set of checklists for accessibility and that will address things, or um, we can come up with a fix or a solution to something. and. I've figured out that the the really critical problems that we need to address and the challenges we need to address do not have a fix or a solution there's there isn't a solution it It is an ongoing process that we have to establish and um you you have to continuously revisit what you're doing and the approach that you're taking so there, I mean, among, th- those are amongst the hundred other <laughs> things that I've been reading. So I'm I'm constantly critically examining what what my thinking is and the assumptions that I'm I'm making. And so I I, I also think that failure and mistakes are one of the most wonderful gifts that there are and we've demonized it in education failures and mistakes are how we learn and i know that's something that has been discussed in and it might be categorized as one of those hippy dippy things but i think a lot of the hippy dippy stuff all of the things that we've sort of defensively rejected because we think it's too soft or it's not well Thought through, or for whatever reason we we are embarrassed in promoting it, there is really really well grounded reason for some of those things. Like you know, I, I've sort of alluded to Gandhi's principle that it's the that societies should be judged by the how we treat the most vulnerable. The notion of karma. I mean, it's it's actually if you think about it logically. Karma does make sense because if you're designing your society in such a way that uh, it works well for Individuals that are not off as well off as you are, then that society when you get to be not so well off or when you experience some of the same trials and and uh, problems it's going to be designed in a way that that makes room for you. Nothing about us without us, which is sort of a disability mantra and has been poo pooed as well it is actually quite. Intelligent because the best design is going to come about if you engage the people that have to use the design. And the the argument against it is that well, if we asked the customer uh, about what uh, the car, or if we had asked um, individuals, the the car would never have been invented if we asked uh, people to reinvent the um, horseless or the the horse driven buggy. But I, I think there's a lot of ways in which that defense against co-design or engaging the the end users in the design can be argued. Uh, One is that you wouldn't engage the individuals that currently like the design or can use it or are well satisfied and well served by the current design. You would bring in people who can't use it and or people who have great difficulty using it and they will come up with um, interesting and innovative alternatives uh, the, <laughs> I've not
1: answered your question <laughs> no I think I think that's that's perfectly yeah that, that's exactly what I was getting at <laughs> great, okay well, so you Terevides, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast.
0: Oh, thank you, and I've really enjoyed the conversation.
1: I hope to have you back again sometime. yeah, <laughs> great. you're enjoying today's episode. If you are, you can help us out by visiting innovation for all on iTunes and leaving us a review. See you soon.